that is a little bit of soul from 1967 by the music explosion and um the uh, words that come to mind like garage band or <clears throat> whatever that word is for sort of silly Jewy, 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 baby, you know, bubblegum music. Uh, these are all the words. That particular song is, I guess we'd call it garage rock because it's simple. And notice that the drummer comes in a slight, it's very calculated. It's very funny. He's over-enthusiastic, but he comes in about an eighth of a beat too late on purpose. Anyway, the song is entitled Little Bit of Soul. And I'm going to read you the lyrics for podcast 309, which is really about hope. Now, when you're feeling low and the fish won't bite, you need a little bit of soul to put you right. You gotta make like you wanna kneel and pray, and then a little bit of soul will come your way. And when your girl is gone and you're broken too, you need a little bit of soul to see you through. And when you're in a mess and you feel like crying, just remember this little song of mine. And as you go through life trying to reach your goal, just remember what I said about a little bit of soul. Now, that's not... A specifically Christian song, but it actually is because it's about kneeling and praying and asking when things are not good for some a little bit of soul, what you might call it the um, mustard seed. And I want to really talk about the anchorage and the roots and the possibility of hope when things are sort of not looking very good. Now you can apply this in any way you want, panoramically or intimately or broadly or familiarly or individually to your own experience. But I was talking to a guy whom I love and know very well, <clears throat> known him for many years, <clears throat> and he's my age, and he said, you know, you get to this point in life when basically things have been on an upward trajectory, and you've had a good family, and you've had success in your work, and you love your wife, and she loves you, and uh, you've really sort of made it, and it's things are still on the upward trajectory, but suddenly you get to age 60 or 65, and what was that? I mean, you suddenly, everything kind of has a, a, the, the, the a kind of shock of sort of collapsing your bodily health you have a stroke you have a heart attack you have a some defeat um <clears throat> that is completely unprecedented you have some kind of financial reversal your children move away or the person you love the most moves away or your husband suddenly dies um they uh you find yourself um living in an upstairs bedroom in uh, a grandchild's house or a nephew's house and uh Who's going to look after you and all the things that you valued and valued with some real gratitude for many, many years are suddenly compromised and uh, really damaged and in some cases completely taken away. And this guy was saying, what do I do now? I mean, what, how do, what do I do about that? The, the sense of paralysis that I have, the sense of innovation I have, the sense of, the, the sense of treading water I have. I, I don't know what to do. I have no real larger cause. I'm... I mean, I'm looking for one. I'm open to one. There are all sorts of things I'd like to do. <clears throat> but in fact, um, I can't quite get it there. And now with the other thing, thing, the other thing going on in our culture, I'm uh, subject to kind of acute, sort of unusual for me, d depression and feelings of, as I said, <clears throat> enervated paralysis. So um, he was saying, can you give me any hope? And, of course, immediately the song by the music explosion from 1967, A Little Bit of Soul Will See You Through. And I thought about the movie um, Little Boy. And at the same time, another thought came to me. You know, when I do these casts that I talk about, sort of voices come to me. And 
<clears throat> words come to me and a song will come to me or a movie will come to me. It's the old um, Eastern maxim, when the student is ready, the teacher appears, or to put it another way, um, when you're really open and you ask for it, you almost always get an answer. And that really is the case. And Jesus said that, you know, a mustard seed of faith is sufficient to move a mountain. And I believe that. A mustard seed is equivalent to a thousand bushels because the results of having a mustard seed of faith end up in a thousand bushels of surprising um, goodness. I've been working with a marvelous pastor in uh, Central Florida whose husband died recently and her mother suddenly died at home, at her home recently. And um, she's now completely on her own and uh, doesn't have natural children. And there she is. Uh, She's got great faith. And we've been working on a manuscript of some poems that she's written, which are actually very good. And some of them are really magnificent. And they're all Christian poems, sort of Isaac Watts character in a different context, but they're songs of hope. And she said, you know, I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Uh, I was, I'm at an age now and with people gone and dead and things changed, I don't know what in the world. And, um, and she said, this project has given me the hope of a whole new life. And I thought, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just great? <laughs> Elder Marguerite, give me a hand here. I, I may have helped you, apparently, but I need you to bring me out now. The um, word that came to me en bref uh, in the moment when I was thinking about this friend of mine whose experience matches my own, which is to say, let me say what it is, that you either go forwards or you go backwards when you're older this is not quite so true in the arc of life before you get into late middle age or early old age but it is uh, because your body is different your body is telling you different things your body is still sort of in tune to some extent you're going mobile Um, but in this case um, what you find when the body begins to kick in and you suddenly have you know I mean golly uh, I have to put on my mask whenever I go outside from our doorstep in Greenwich, Connecticut. I've already got hearing aids, which are afflicting both ears. I, uh, I have sunglasses, which I wear, and around my neck. And then I have reading glasses to look at if I get a message on my phone or a text from Mary or something like that. So I basically, <clears throat> I basically got four things around my ears. And it all boils down to bad eyesight and bad hearing. And then I've got this, that, and the other thing. And um, then suddenly something will come along. And I'm not really old. I feel very quite preserved for what it's worth. I'm probably not, but I feel it. But the truism here, and it's more than a truism, it's a fact. And I want you to hear it. If you don't go head forward, you always go backwards. When you reach a certain period in your life, and this is actually true for people in their 40s and 50s too, but it's not as obvious. It's not as painfully forced on you. If you don't go forward mental health-wise, you will inevitably go backwards. You never stay still. I wish you did. I wish I could stay sort of treading water in a place of, you know, I've had my life, my career, my family. I don't quite know what tomorrow may bring by traffic. You know, I don't know what tomorrow may bring, so I'd just like to stay here. But what happens is you start living in the past. Jethro Tull, you do. You actually do. You start living in the in the, um, you start literally existing in the past. It's hard for me to express it to you without you saying, <clears throat> you must be sick, but it's not true. We saw recently, um, golly, Emma, the, uh, not the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, but the, the, the more recent BBC version, 
<clears throat> and the um, elderly mother of Miss Bates, who is well-born but has lost everything and is living in borrowed housing, you might say, in an inn almost. And uh, she's looking after her mother, who's about 85, who's... Um, her mother just sits all day in the in the chair and looking out. Now, where is she looking? Where is this old lady looking? Because she occasionally speaks. She occasionally, a thought comes out of her mouth. Well, we would say she has Alzheimer's. But um, she's actually somewhere, but she's not, not, she's not there. She's, she's in the past. She's somewhere in the past. I say this in my book. Um, she's probably in some kind of relationship that mattered to her of any number of possible kinds, but it was a close, connected relationship. <clears throat> I um, I visited a lady, I think I've told you, in Chevy Chase, who was typical, sort of came from Washington Swamp type of, you know, her son was an ambassador and her father had been there and she'd grown up, you know, it was one of these group families that had always been in government service and so forth, but um, being looked after at this point in her life, she was had her marbles, as we say, but she was unable to, she was completely immobile in her house, and I said, well, Mrs. So-and-so, what do you do all day? What are you thinking about? You'd have to say that in a way that is actually interested. Well, she said, I spend almost all of my time thinking about a relationship I would like to have had. I said, tell me more. And she said, well, I'm really, I've been in love with someone for many, for many, several years, and I spend all my life dreaming, daydreaming about how that relationship would be going now assuming that maybe she married the fellow where it worked out. I said, oh my gosh, I'm, what, whatever happened to him? And then this is what she said. She said, well, I've never actually met him. He's quite well known. He's quite famous. And I've always wanted to know him. And I've always thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to, to fall in love with him? But I've never actually met him. <laughs> this woman, I mean, here she was. She was a very, humanly speaking, sophisticated lady. And this is what she spent her entire day doing. And finally, her son came and just took her away. I'll never forget. The assistant minister in the parish said, Mrs. So-and-so has been kidnapped. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But um, if you don't move forward, you move backwards. Now, the word that came to me when I was listening to my friend who told me about his sense of hopelessness because he couldn't really move forward but he had a good life and and he didn't know really what if there was any meaning he had no plans of any kind and um, then this word came read Joyce Carey's novel to be a pilgrim well now you remember Joyce Carey he was an Anglo-Irish these are the words actually in English novelist of Protestant Irish origins who was quite well born and very well educated and very brilliant and he wrote many many novels in the sort of 30s 40s and 50s 40s and 50s really some of which like The Horse's Mouth were made into very good movies and Mr. Johnson he's completely forgotten now I wasn't you know it wasn't my usual unknown (laughs) authors I guess it probably was actually but he had a very strong turning to religion he was a very Protestant Anglican. He didn't go to church, but he considered him, well, he, sometimes he did. He considered himself very much a Christian and, and evangelical with a capital E, that is to say a low church Protestant Anglican Christian. And his Christianity, which is very real, comes in all his books. But he wrote one book about, a, it's the th- uh, third in a trilogy, published in 1941, uh, that was very successful at the time, called To Be a Pilgrim. And in it, the f- character Tom Wiltshire is a squire. He's a well-born Englishman, a squire with some, um, he studied law, and he's become a very successful barrister in London, and uh, 
He is um, also sort of a minor league politician of the sort of old school liberal capital L tradition, but he's been very disillusioned. He's now an old man and he's out of his career, he's retired, but he does happen to own a very significant estate with a beautiful Robert Adam house on it in which he lives <clears throat> down in some Somerset or Devon or someplace like that. And he is, um, he's basically just ruminating about his life as it was and his thoughts as they are. <clears throat> and he's a devout church-going Christian of an old school variety, but really meaning it. He's a real man of prayer of almost Edwardian or Victorian type. And um, he ruminates on the decline of the Church of England in the 30s after World War One, and he ruminates on God and mission and his and his nephews and nieces. And he has all sorts, and he's a little bit of a rascal too. He's got a bit of a we would call it today a kind of sex addiction, which is very modestly and chastely, not chastely, but modestly described by the author Joyce Carey, who was a man, by the way, <clears throat> in which, which gets him into trouble and finally actually gets him arrested. But that's not the key thing. He's got, a, he's got an Achilles heel, but his main virtue is his reflectivity. <clears throat> and he's not hiding anything. And he has a woman he's very interested in getting married to. He's never been married. He's like in her late 50s, early 60s. He's, he's a good man in many ways, with a couple of problems, and he's old, but he constantly is saying, and this is why God gave me the, the novel, which I'd read before, but I read entirety in every word again recently. He's entirely saying, if you don't go forward, you go back. It's not, if you don't go forward, you stay still. But there's something about the human arc, the arc of human development, that if you don't go forward, you go back. You may have seen this in other aspects of your life. If you don't move out of a problem, you go back to the problem. It's certainly true in all sorts of addictive, especially alcohol, but you name it, any addictive thing. But it's the human condition. <clears throat> I find that I move back into kind of sedated memory arcs over elements of my life that made a big impression. Let's say my seminary training with Mary in a golden era for us, two years in Nottingham, England, when St. John's College there was a absolute beacon of light and the charismatic renewal all over the world and especially in the Church of England. And we met many sanctified, colorful, lovely, kind, loving people, almost all of whom ended up in the ministry of the Church of England and did most of whom did well. And we, um, or I look back upon a period of time when in our first parish in Silver Spring, Maryland, which was hell on wheels. I mean, they just couldn't stand us. I mean, the parish liked us, but the rector was threatened and the staff was threatened and a certain group in the parish thought we were sort of Southern Baptists who'd suddenly fallen out of the sky when actually I was a lifelong Episcopalian and had grown right up, up right there. So they couldn't, they couldn't undo me by some kind of cultural um, pigeonholing. But it, it, oh my gosh, but we gave everything. Mary and I gave everything. Our house was open, our little apartment, I should say. We had no money, no children yet, and <clears throat> we just gave our entire lives to this ministry. And it was successful as far as the people were concerned, but but it was also horribly attacking, and we, we finally couldn't stay because we were, we were told we couldn't have a Bible study anymore. That was the, that was the final straw. He said, I'm sorry, because half the parish was coming to the Bible study. We didn't mean to be divisive. We just offered a Bible study, and everybody came, and he finally said, I'm sorry, you have to stop the Bible study. No more Bible study in the parish. Well, I mean, give me a break. <clears throat> That's, but, but I look back upon that time as a powerful time, watching the Pallisers on, on uh, public TV and after youth group on Sunday nights together and getting so much out of that and our remarkable connection we had with England and then sort of rescued by Fitzsimmons Allison and going to New York. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is you look back upon times in your life that were golden, 
as opposed to, and you can live there. I think someone said, uh, I think a friend of mine, uh, I think Tom Calhoun, Dr. Calhoun said, the past is a great place to visit, but you don't want to live there. I mean, I think he was probably quoting, but it's true. You can live there, and that's regressive. You need to move forward. Now, how? How do you move forward? Well, you, you can't be told to move forward. I can't give you wisdom. I sent my friend some quotes from the book by Joyce Carey, in which the protagonist talks about not standing still because that always means going backwards and regressing but always moving forward and of course it's good advice but how how to well it usually has to do with some form of love some form of givenness some supernatural gift of promise i i attribute whatever i'm doing that's positive and forward thinking in addition to having mary's support which is crucial anchor anchor building block the head the cornerstone i would attribute it to paula white who, um, who provided me hope for a future um, in her own natural Christian um, optimism. Now, look, I want to say something about that, and then we're, we're done. Um, hope comes because God gives it to you when you ask for it. And if I had to say anything about the Christian faith right now, it would be two things. First is that, that when you ask in humility and often brokenness and profound despair and desperate defeat and impasse, and, and lostness, you finally are suddenly, and it's a gift, it's always a gift, you're given to ask God for a little bit of soul, a little bit of something, a mustard seed, I mean, a, help me, a, help me here. And it, the answer is always given. Some answer is always given. And that is my experience across the board without any real exceptions that I can think of. When I've been at my wit's end and I've asked for help, God has always given me a little bit of soul, and a little bit of soul translated usually into two to three to five years of service and hope and good work and relationship and a girlfriend, by that I mean Mary, um, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I would also add that, and that's the Paula White dimension, if I may call it that. This, the other thing, of course, is the gospel. That is to say, you always stand in need of and in receipt of mercy, absolution, and tender forgiveness. Um, there are issues in my life. There are certain things left done and undone in the past, the distant past, that I would do anything to um, stop thinking about. I, I can't change them, what happened, but I would do anything to feel that I'd overcome the lacerations or the scars or the stitches uh, of a past thing. I would do anything to stop uh, this, that, or the other thing from kind of occasionally coming up and aggravating itself. Like I was talking about phosphorus, you know, I would do anything to, to have overcome, not the thing itself, because that's part of one's life and history, but the, um, the bad feeling about the thing. But God has forgiven me that. God forgives me my inability to overcome this or that preoccupation that slows me down in terms of any kind of forward movement towards him and with him. He forgives. That's the gospel. So what have I said? The gospel forgiveness for whatever it is, ever it is, quoting Tully and Tavidian, whatever it is, and Stacy, and numero due, um, ask and ye shall receive, knock and the door shall be opened. And that's my message to you today. Now we conclude with a, with a terrific sort of garage rock sound that I hope you love. It's by the Gentries.